gentlemen, welcome to Eat, Sleep, Suplex Retweet. And welcome to this, the latest episode of Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. I'm Stephen Wilson, and this is week seven now of lockdown in Scotland. So, once more, you're stuck with our absolutely rotten patter, as always, to talk about something to do with wrestling. And this week, we'll be talking about, in as brief, as much detail as we can within 90 minutes, we'll talk about the career of the game Triple H, yes, the cerebral assassin himself, the multiple time world champion. Hunter House Helmsley, Triple H. Uh, but before we go into talk about the career of the game, uh, just a bit of housekeeping, please subscribe to us on all good uh, podcast platforms, uh, whatever one you want to listen to. So it's Spotify, Android podcast sites, uh, Anchor, we're on them all. You can get us on social media as well, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Suplex Retweet. Now, Triple H is a man known for being associated with lots of groups. So... I thought I would introduce my panel today with some analogies of some of Triple H's famous associates. First, his best friend, one of his great friends, Shawn Michaels, and one of our panellists, it's just like Shawn Michaels, but that's enough about his hair. It's David Hockney. Hi, Stevie. How's it going, David? I'm still a degenerate at heart, so I think it's very suited that I'm part of this DX pairing. Yes. <laughs> you are too old for this shit. <laughs> Yeah, That's probably am. That's a word that nobody has ever used to describe you, David. <laughs> David probably got a punishment exercise at school for not answering a teacher within 10 seconds. You, you, you never knew what went on in uh, in a private school. Jesus. Oh, okay, on. that explains my point. <laughs> Carry on, Stevie. Yes, uh, moving on. Some people say that behind the scenes, Randy Orton is an arsehole. Our next panellist is an arsehole behind the scenes and to your face. Gary Kernhead, everybody. Uh, a very accurate description, Stephen. I can't actually argue or come back on that one. No, especially with the story that you told us before the show, Gary, which we will not reveal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, and our next panellist. Now, when you first came into DX, everybody loved X-Pac, but then very quickly, uh, the... You really just wanted to boo him and you couldn't stand the sight of him. Please welcome our version of X-Pac. It's Grand McRobbie, everybody. <laughs> well, I'm tall, hairy, and I think you're a bit of a dick, so that's probably about right. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make another X-Pac analogy, Grant, but nah, let's not. <laughs> no, let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, every great stable needs a man like this someone who can strut he can lead it he is the symbol of it he is our Ric Flair it's Kwaku Aji Woo! Woo! I like that one <laughs> yes um, somebody has to organise the chaos and lead the place and just set a great example I don't know if that's, <laughs> that's a great thing this... <laughs> then again it is a Ric Flair comparison so what example does Nature Boy set <laughs> true that absolutely so on this latest show we're going to be talking about the career of Triple H as he recently celebrated 25 years in the WWE. We're going to try and go into as much detail as we can, obviously 25 years and 90 minutes. Not, it's a lot to get through, but we'll do try our best. But we're going to start off with his the early days of Triple H roundabout from his debut in 1995 as Hunter Hersley through 
1999, just before he won his first WWF Championship. I'm going to go to Dave first on this one. Dave, a four-year period, when you look at where Triple H debuted his character to just before he became you know, the WWF Champion, he had such a great transformation in that short period alone. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, you know, when he first started in '92, when he was you know at Killer Kowalski's school, he went through a couple of character changes, and even when he was in WCW for a short time as Terra Rising and as Jean-Paul Levesque, you know, he still had that, that sort of blue blood character, that sort of aristocratic, uh, pompous character about him. So bringing that Connecticut blue blood, uh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley from WCW to the WWF. It definitely was quite a quite a smooth transition for him, and it was a great character to kick off his WWE career. Yeah, Grant, an amazing thing actually to say, when Triple H first came into WWE, they were originally going to call him Reginald DuPont Hemsley, but he wanted a, a, a name that suited the letters better. Do you think Reginald DuPont Hemsley would have done what Triple H did over the last 25 years? I think it'd be quite hard to like believe the career of RDH. It would sound a wee bit, it sounds like a bit like a condition. <laughs> well, if you look at his early feuds, uh, he could have ended up going nowhere. Uh, feuding very early on with the likes of Henry O. Godwin and Duke the Dumpster Drozzy. Mm. Uh, before oh. he got very early great moment, Gary, you obviously remember this given your age, uh, when he was squashed by the Ultimate Warrior on his WrestleMania debut. Well, I we got Sky TV installed in our house for the first time when we were kids in 1995 so when I uh, got back into wrestling uh, Triple H had just debuted, I unfortunately had missed by this point uh, it was just before Survivor Series in 95 so I missed his debut match against Buck Zumhole on Wrestling (laughs) Challenge in 95 and I missed his first pay-per-view match with Bob Hawley at SummerSlam um, but I did get to see, I did get to catch up to see the hog pin match, which was good. And I seen that classic with Duke the Dumpster Drossy. And uh, I remember being dead so excited about Triple H and uh, Ultimate Warrior to see the return of the Ultimate Warrior. Triple H at this time was a bit bland character, but he was a really good wrestler. So um, I always enjoyed watching his matches, but the presentation was somewhat dull. Yeah, I mean... Dave, Gary mentioned the presentation of him. He was kind of that pompous type character. Had such a bit of snobbiness to it. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you think uh, when the event, obviously they changed it up very quickly in 1997 or something, but could you have seen that character having any other form of leverage, or do you think that was right that they eventually just thought, nah, this isn't working. We know he's good, but we need, we can do more with him. I think it was. It got to that point, you know. I think as long as you keep a character fresh and obviously, well, for lack of a better word, on that path of evolution. It, that's what was really going to sort of cement him as a top guy. You know, the fact that he's, you know, growing, he's learned, he's a student of the game. You know, that's the, that's sort of has been his moniker for his entire career. So the fact that he kept making those changes, it definitely was what he needed. And to be honest, I think this uh, sort of um, aristocratic blue blood gimmick that he had, I think it was a gimmick that was way ahead of its time, given that, you know, I think it would work really, really well in this day and age, particularly if it was uh, in front of a British audience, because, you know, obviously it's, uh, you know, most of the country, you know, aren't like huge fans of like um, upper class sort of blue blood pompous characters. Uh, so I think it would have hit it off really well. But You know who would, you know who would have suited this gimmick? Baron Corbin. 
Oh, well, I mean, he's got the title of a king. He already is. Uh, he's already coming across as like a, a pompous, uh, entitled sort of character. So I guess it works for him right now. It's a pompous character who tries to kill people on top of WWE headquarters. But yeah, multiple, multiple people. Yes, yeah. multiple people. How's he, not, how's he not been arrested for uh, two counts of attempted murder? Well, he did get hit with a guitar by Elias. You know? Oh, <laughs> so, yeah, and how do you think Rey Mysterio and Alistair Black feel right now? Well, they were the brother next night. Perfectly tight. There were a couple of efforts uh, to evolve Triple H's character, and some of them not particularly successful. He had Mr. Perfect paired with him when he won his first IC title, which on paper looks like a really good match, but that didn't last for long, and then he was paired with Mr. Hughes for a while, which again didn't really go anywhere, but it's when he went with Curtis Hughes, I remember around about the Royal Rumble and the big one at San Antonio, we started to see sort of different presentation of him. He had different ring music and different um, ring gear as well. He'd done away with that sort of horse riding type <laughs> gear that he was wearing to the ring at that time. So when he started to see it's a subtle ch- some subtle changes in the, the presentation of the character and move him away from that blue blood. Mm-hmm. Do you know what? Do you know who else was actually considered to be his bodyguard? This was a discussion that he revealed he had with Vince on his DVD. It was that it was even a discussion that quite possibly his bodyguard would be the Honky Tonk Man. <laughs> yeah, the Honky Tonk Man. He <laughs> got that, long sideburns and a tail. That just that, that just wouldn't have worked. But uh, not uh, not long before uh, Gary mentioned before he ended up going with Mr. Perfect to Mr. Hughes. There was a bit of an incident that he got involved in. He was he, while he was in his first year of the company. He made a lot of friends, and three friends in particular: Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, and Shawn Michaels. In the click, got in a bit of trouble with a scene outside. The scene not actually televised that it apparently cost him the 1996 King of the Ring tournament, and of it, and nearly seen him fall to the bottom of the ladder. It's a testament to Triple H that he was able to recover from such a thing as the curtain call, and he could have ended up just floundering somewhere else. Oh yeah, I mean, any any anyone could wouldn't have blamed him if he just suddenly went and gave up on things and perhaps considered is this the right thing for me. But instead, he worked really hard at it, bounced back, and then it was in October twenty first, nineteen ninety six, the same year that he got the win for the IC belt. So it's a, it's a definite bounce back when you go from being bottom of the pecking order after that to getting pretty much the second top title at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they beat Mark Merrill for the, the IC title as well, which is a feud that stemmed all the way from WrestleMania, where he had Sable as his valley that night, you know, mm-hmm. and then nearly and then disposed of her to the scrap heap on the same night. What a silly move! That's, that maybe explains the feud they had later years with Brock Lesnar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, but um, he would win the nineteen ninety seven King of the Ring, Gary, and then shortly afterwards, that's when we really started to see. Triple H, probably the true Triple H came out when, along with Shawn Michaels, China and Rick Rude, they formed one of the greatest stables of all time in D-Generation X. Yeah, I mean, that snob gimmick was was long gone by this point. And the King of the Ring victory, I mean, how important is Mankind Mick Foley going to be in the career of Triple H as we go through? That was a great match at King of the Ring and the, Survivor, and the SummerSlam follow-up match they had. But yeah, absolutely, this was Triple H's big move and if I remember right he got an injury not long after this so he kind of wasn't able 
to do much work in the ring, so he did a lot more behind-the-scenes skits and ring promos, which really, you know, helped to elevate him and seen some of the things that he then became, you know, he's he's now fantastic on the mic, he's trolling audience. You know, they were not things that he did an awful lot as Hunter Hearst Hemsley, so being there, being with Shawn Michaels, learning from him in those instances really helped enormously, and he was he was really good in that role, and um, really bloody annoying as well. Yeah, the, the torture they guys gave to Sergeant Slaw in late 1997. Oh, terrorised them everywhere they went. <laughs> uh, it, it, it was something else, and uh, Dave, this was kind of when we first, this was the first subtle signs we really saw of this kind of attitude ever starting to come in. These guys were pushing the boats with some of these promos they were doing. It wasn't just your standard, you know, kind of bad guy stuff they were doing. They were teetering the edge between these cool heels and these mm. guys who were the anti-authority. Yeah, it was. This is what made DX such a, a unique stable because they were doing antics that some sometimes the network just would not tolerate. You know, you couldn't like, you know, show your show your ass on air, or you couldn't like swear, you couldn't do like any of that sort of stuff. So they were always sort of pushing the boundaries a bit because you know guys like Shawn Michaels who were so um, embedded with creative, they just sort of kept pushing the boundaries here and there and the fact that they had this group mentality that's all that was only gonna support them and Vince has even said himself he's not a huge fan of like groups or factions but having DX as sort of the main sort of focal group against other groups like say the Heart Foundation that this uh, not only helped to elevate the group as a whole but I think Triple H in particular because at the time you know he was sort of the the upper mid card guy uh, compared to Shawn Michaels who was the WWF champion at the time Mm-hmm. Uh, Grant, as a New Japan fan, you're a big fan, obviously, of Stables. That's a staple of that promotion. We would you say that DX has influenced a lot of these stables that we kind of see in that promotion, the likes of Bullet Club and uh, LIJ? I mean, you can definitely see the influence in the fact that before DX, the clique had a big formation. That combined with it, so you could say Bullet Club's like the child of DX and the clique, the two sweet hand gestures when they came in, which was, wasn't the original part of it until it did become big then Vince decided he wanted to sue them if they kept on doing it which led to the one sweet incident mm-hmm. I mean you, you can see like DX has had a, a very profound impact on stables in Japan Mexico even in the, even in the UK scene yeah there's just staples of them everywhere I mean Gary one of the great things about DX is you had, a trip, you had uh, Shawn Michaels who was the leader of the stable, forced into retirement after WrestleMania in 1998 with that back injury that he suffered at the Royal Rumble. It could have just fell to the wayside, but it could be argued that Triple H took the ball, ran with it, and just evolved the DX stable into something quite spectacular. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I mean, I still loved that episode of Monday Night Raw where Triple H did that, where he took control of DX and the X-Mark came back and the New Age Outlaws joined. And it did what a stable should do. It really elevated everybody. It created all these different storylines. It was just, it was brilliant. Yeah, they had that feud that lasted throughout that whole summer with the, the Nation of Domination. You know, again... A lot of risky segments during that feud that could have went either way. You know, some people look back on them differently, but it was just the anything they were doing. They would they would try to push the boat. Some stuff worked better than others. 
But one of the famous examples, David, when they did push the boat was that night that they went to WCW. And oh, they, yeah. they tried to invade one of the most iconic moments of the Monday Night Wars. Yeah, definitely. Given, you know, this was a, a time, you know, where the, the Monday Night Wars were at its peak. And I think the WWF had to do something really, that really stamped on the, on that point. And having the, driving the, what was it, the Jeep or something into the, into the CNN headquarters, I think it was. It was a tank, it was like the tank thing, a mini tank, tank Jeep. Yeah, tank Jeep, yeah. It was, oh, it's just one of those memorable moments that you just don't forget. And it was just one of the the key highlights. And if the fact that Triple H has associated himself with moments like that, you know, that's what people will think. Oh yeah, he was the guy that did this and the guy that did that. So almost pushing the boundaries with these sorts of antics is kind of what made him made him very very memorable. The only downside I could see is if they did that today, like I don't think any other stuff would get by today, given that you know the ni- the late nineties was very. Uh, very edgy, very cool, and very just completely non-PC. Well, we saw that uh, in later years when having Shawn Michaels reunited DX in 2006, and they tried a lot of the same skits they tried back in 97, 98, and it just didn't come across the same way. Uh, I think you've got to take account of the fact, you know, they're both a bit older as well, and it's kind of like, you know, if us going back to back to university just for, like, the one of those 12 hour Tuesday nights or something I mean it'd be fun but I don't think you know we'd get up to the same stuff as we did as compared to say 10 like 5-6 years ago yeah 12 hour Tuesday would become 2 hour Tuesdays and we'd be absolutely out of it by getting pints for a pound yep (laughs) (laughs) feeling the effects of it Uh, Grant one of the things a lot of people criticise WWE for is they don't really these days anyway they don't really push new talent to the extent that we would like but in 1998, when Triple H was the leader of DX, it was him and The Rock in this sort of feud that kind of was layered underneath the, the main feud between Steve Austin and The Undertaker. This kind of leader of the, these two factions, do you think this helped to really cement the two of them as future, you know, Hall of Famers, future champions that they were? And it did, it completely elevated them. I mean, it's, I mean, at that point, it was really actually like one of their second feuds because it was The Rock. If I remember correctly, got the got the belt off him back in '97 as well. I think that yeah, yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah, when he was still Rocky Mavia, and it was like so you've had like like Triple H before he is DX with Rocky Mavia. Now you've got him Nation of Domination DX, and then eventually leading on to Corporate The Rock and DX Triple H. It's just three escalating feuds which kept getting better. Mm-hmm. The I thought the ladder match that the two of them have at SummerSlam in '98. It's a very underrated ladder match in ladder match history, I think. You obviously could, people would compare it to a lot of the great ladder matches and like things like TLCs we see, but this one at the time, where there wasn't as many of this type of match going, it was a very, very good match. What's a solid pay-per-view in SummerSlam that year? Outstanding, outstanding pay-per-view that year, and yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, obviously ladder matches, time goes on, they look for more extreme bumps and that, but there's a certain psychology in the older ones which sometimes doesn't come through in the modern ones, which makes it stand out. It's funny to say now, but I remember that time thinking this that if I ever see another Rock Triple H match, it would be too soon because they just seem to be feuding forever. It seems crazy to say that now about two of the greatest of all times uh, that you can see them wrestle too much, but they their careers at that point just seemed intertwined and they were never far away from one another. 
they were like the John, they were like the John Cena, Randy Orton of the nineties. But I think The Rock has even said as well that his matches with Triple H were actually some of his his favorite matches and also some of his best ones too. So in a way, they they elevated each other. I mean, here's something, Dave. Actually, this is easy to look back in hindsight, given that the career that Triple H has had. But when DX broke up at WrestleMania 15. Mm-hmm. It felt too soon at the time, but in hindsight, you could obviously say something. Do you think it was the right call just to kind of curtail DX in that way? Um, yes. Obviously, you know, this goes back to the argument that, you know, if something sticks around for too long, it might just get stale. But obviously, with Shawn Michaels out with his back injury, I think the WWF needed a new top heel. And Triple H, when he took the helm, as the leader of DX when HBK went away. I think this was the the point where Triple H had to sort of break out on his own and become the top guy. And then by that point, you know, he would have a full year where he would uh, win the WWF Championship. He would go into WrestleMania the following year as the champion and walk out of the of Mania 2000 as the champion still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was kind of, to, to pardon the pun, I think it played a great part in his evolution. You know, I think he was a fun-loving character for a year, but, you know, I think he could only go so far. That type of gimmick that he kind of had with DX. And if he wanted to be taken seriously, I think they had to do something a wee bit different with him. And mm-hmm. I think that's why they went. I mean, went with the corporation, or he went to the corporate ministry, you know. They needed to kind of go with it, but could you tell, Gary, that... Once that heel turn at WrestleMania 15 happened with Xbox, it was just a matter of time before this guy was going to be champion. Yeah, because he was when he went into the corporate ministry, he kind of became a big fish in a big pond as well. He was a leader of his own faction, and then he joined that, and he was one of the team. Uh, and he developed his look. He'd also, uh, you know, he bulked up a bit. Then you know, he, he started to. To look more like a stereotypical Vince McMahon star. Yeah, he kind of had. He, he went from the longer type of trucks type that he had in DX to that kind of obviously just the, the, the truck type idea that he has currently just now. And he would eventually win the, the WWF Championship on in August of 1999, albeit he didn't quite win it at the event that many people would thought that he was. Failed to win it at SummerSlam that year, and then beat Mankind the next night. Obviously, there's speculation throughout the years of why he didn't win it at SummerSlam. I mean, what was your thoughts on how he won the championship for the first time? It, it seemed really, like, looking back on it at, at the time, like, when I was a kid, it was like, wait, why didn't he win it in the big event? Why is it just suddenly on Raw afterwards? It kind of made it feel like it wasn't as important. Now, you know what I think I, it may have been? Um... Because obviously, you know, it's a big pay-per-view with SummerSlam. I think to send the fans home happy, I think it would make more sense to have a face win it, only to then lose it at the very next opportunity to someone who wanted to be portrayed as an up-and-coming heel. And we've said before on the pod, like, Triple H is one of the best heel characters that WWF, WWE's ever produced. So I think him being the one to dethrone Mankind, who was much more of a babyface character than, say, Austin was, and to do it one-on-one at the very first opportunity, I think it just elevated Triple H in the sense that, you know, he beat a babyface so quickly and everybody's going to hate him more as a result. So I probably would feel differently about that 
if it hap- if I was watching it now at my age and knowing what I know about it than I did at the time. Because mm-hmm. at the time, the championship was starting to change a bit more frequently, but it didn't change in Raw very often. So that seemed like a big deal. And also the way that he won it, this the story of threatening to beat JR up and and uh, Mick Foley agreeing to the match kind of made sense uh, and it made you hate Triple H that little bit that little bit more yeah I mean the, the, the rumour obviously it's been about for years obviously it's not is it Austin's denied this himself I think in interviews that he didn't want to drop the belt to Triple H so he dropped the belt to Mankind and then Mankind dropped the belt to Triple H but obviously that's just a lot of rumours obviously something that's been denied a lot of the times but Triple H, even though he won the championship in, in August, Dave, I didn't quite feel that he was the fully cemented top heel until later that year, where he aligned himself with the boss's daughter and the McMahon Helmsley faction was born. What was your thoughts on the formation of this faction at the end of 1999? Uh, yeah, this, again, you know, it's another step in his, you know, progression to just being the top guy and I do recall Gary saying you know he talked about his shoot promo with JR about uh, you know him trying to come across as an effective heel I think that was the turning point for him you know but it was a even then he still had to go on a bit of a gradual uh, gradual increase and partnering himself with Stephanie McMahon I think having that power couple sort of stature and given that you know it was the boss's daughter People could say that's him sort of etching his way into the literally the, the upper echelon of WWF. So knowing that he's, you know, with the McMahons now, I think people will look at him and think, you know what, this guy's like he, he's made it to the top now. Uh, Grant, the the way he aligned himself with Stephanie, it's definitely something that you would never see in current television twenty years later. But the moment where she turns on her, ba- her dad at Armageddon, I don't know how much you remember this one, but I was a kid, seven odd year old, watching this, and I thought, what the hell? That's just wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was like totally, even as a kid, I think like at that point I was 10, and I was just like, what is going on? What is this? What is happening? Uh, that's her dad. Why is, she, why is she with him? You know, what, ha- what happened to Test? Where's Test been? <laughs> <laughs> Test, just kinda dis- Test just kind of like disappeared. And then ended up in TNA, as in testing Albert, not TNA. Not <laughs> Impact Wrestling, yeah. <laughs> Definitely uh, not. Uh, Gary, you mentioned this briefly earlier on, when uh, Triple H, he bet Mankind in 1997 to win the King of the Ring. But the two of them didn't really intertwine and, and get the same chemistry until early in the two, 2000, when both at the Royal Rumble and at No Way Out, they produced two of the best matches over the course of that year the chemistry between the two of them are off, is off the chain oh abs- absolutely and WWE needed you know Mick Foley at this stage he really helped elevate Triple H the, the roster was a bit thin bare at this point so many injuries to big stars Rock I think was a was he away doing no, he no, won the Rumble was, that year, wasn't he? Was he won the Rumble, it was Austin that was injured. Mm-hmm. So they really needed Mick to carry Triple H, keep Triple H busy through to Mania. And the bumps in that match, I've seen a quote recently from Mick Foley talking about taking a pedigree on the thumbtacks, saying, oh, you know, yeah. it's dangerous, I could lose an eye. Oh, but what a spot it would be. <laughs> 
which is because he has an insight into the man's psyche. But it also showed you Triple H in a different light because he hadn't really done these types of matches. Or if he had done them, I, I certainly don't remember them. Do you know? This sort of hardcore match, and it just shows showed you another you know wrinkle in his in the page for him. It was another another string to his bow, something else he could do. He, you know, he's had a lot of matches he went on. You know, Hell in the Cell goes on to be quite a big part of his career. Mm-hmm. Um, so the two of them, yeah, it was it was it was fantastic. The match, I know we, there's other shows in the network talked about it, but that Hell in the Cell match probably should have been. The match that at WrestleMania, it was, it was, it was something else. That street fight as well was just unbelievable. Yeah, the, yeah. the, pe- the pedigree and the thumbtacks was a was a belter of a spot. And you know when you were talking about you know other match types he went through, did he not have to go through like five stipulation matches just to get into the Unforgiven '99 six pack challenge? Yes, it was a, a casket match, a boiler room brawl, an infernal match, an infernal match, a strap match. And something else. Uh, so who who did he go up against? Uh, Choke Slam Challenge. That's what it was. Yeah, it was against the Big Show, Kane, The Rock, Mike mm, uh, Kent, and uh, there wasn't David Boy Smith. It was uh, Undertaker. Mid- Midian, no Undertaker withdrew, and he was replaced by Midian and Gary's favourite, Viscera. I didn't even say his name. <laughs> but you knew we were going to say it. <laughs> uh, Grant, I'll go back to you. We mentioned that uh, the street fight was epic between him and Mick Foley, but what I liked about Triple H across the year 2000, he showed his versatility a wee bit. I mean, he had the Iron Man match with The Rock at Judgment Day, and then he also had a Last Man Standing match with, I believe it was Chris Jericho, and then he had that feud with Kurt Angle, which had a lot more comedicness to it, you know. It showed that he was a bit of a jack of all trades over that year. Yeah, it was definitely like one of one of his like probably standout year that really cemented him in the upper bit year. Back and forth the back and forth with the title with the rock, the Jericho feud, but yeah, the angle one really sticks in memory just because it was bloody hilarious at points. Coming out of pure gold with the whole love triangle with him and Angle and Stephanie. They made it work. Even if there was that really sort of um, dodgy, like legit concussion from the botched pedigree on the commentary table. Oh, I had, uh, I talked with Ross at this one because we reviewed this show on the retro reviews on the Suplex Retweet Extra feed, and it's just Angle looks absolutely dazed to everything, and it just I, I, I sit there think like, did they actually mean for half these spots to happen? Like, uh, there's a point where Angle's getting carted out on the stretcher, and Triple H just. Legs it down the down the entrance ramp and literally drags him back down while Angle's still on the stretcher. I'm sitting there thinking, did they call that on the fly, or was Angle really meant to happen? You know, <laughs> so he's got so uh, Gary's got so many good matches. I mean, a lot of people say about Triple H. You know, we'll talk later on the show. Sometimes maybe criticise his evolution run for the type of for his matches, but 2000, he was described by PW Torch as the top wrestler in the US. And the start of this millennium, and he just showed it at all these pay per view matches. Yeah, I mean, he's always been a solid worker. Go back to what we were saying at the start of the show. Uh, he was a solid hand. He had the danger potentially of being seen as a as a bit of a mechanic and somebody that they could uh, just use to elevate other people. But he took his chances when they came. And what I think what we were seeing here 
was Triple H starting to emerge as one of the leaders and having to carry the show. And at that era, you know, the WWF cards were stacked, you know, they were ran full of talent, but the matches were mental. <laughs> the things folk were doing. And if you're going out in the main event, you've got to follow all of that. I think that's what we started to see in the mindset of Triple H here, that, you know, to be the man. Uh, be the man, you got to beat the man, absolutely. Something that uh, his evolution stablemate Ric Flair was very famous for saying. Uh, Dave, we've mentioned he seemed to intertwine Triple H with Mick Foley and The Rock throughout most of these 2000s and early years, but the one feud that kind of stuck there and they didn't really go, obviously, didn't really go to it too much because obviously the injury, his feud with Stone Cold Steve Austin, to me, is, some, is the feud of my childhood very early watching wrestling. I loved Austin and I hated Triple H. Mm-hmm. It was just a f- fantastic feud, obviously, that they used the neck injury and Triple H getting them ran over. I thought the two of them were absolutely brilliant together as a, a, a rivalry. Yeah, they had such good chemistry with one another, even, you know, in 2001 where they were paired as the, the two-man power trip. But just to sort of go back to what you were saying about the Rock, his matches with Mick Foley and The Rock. Like, I remember watching uh, Backlash 2000 and then Judgment Day to watch his matches with The Rock, including the Iron Man match. Like, those, those matches, I would say, were better than WrestleMania that year and including a lot of matches that, you know, I've seen today. It just seems to be like, you know, that's how good he was I mean, as a main event star. He could just work with with absolutely anybody. And, you know, obviously uh, keeping that consistency up with, uh, you know, referring to Austin's neck injury, that's proper. Uh, I think that's where the sort of name Cerebral Assassin came about because he methodically picks apart opponents' weaknesses and then exploits them. So I think that's kind of where the whole Cerebral Assassin sort of uh, persona or nickname came about for him. Yeah, that's my favourite Iron Man match, Dave. I think that that, that was fantastic, that match. How long was, it, was it an hour long? It was an was hour a, long one. And it was 6-5 to Triple H. Yeah, it was so different. Obviously, the first Iron Match, I remember before that, was Brett and Sean. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this one was... Uh, I just loved it. It was so, so different. I always remember it for the return of the Undertaker. That's the thing yeah. that always stands out to me on that one when he comes out as the American badass. You know, that was that spectacular. Was a, definitely, it was something. It was something else. I mean, uh, Grant, uh, Dave mentioned it very briefly. Triple H and Austin then became the two-man power trip, and would, would dominate Raw for a couple of months before Triple H went on the shelf. What did you make of this one? Do you think if Triple H didn't get injured that these two could have dominated Raw all the way through the year. Yeah, it totally. To me, it's it, it was definitely one that that worked. It was kind of felt like an early example of what feels like a stable a staple thing for WWE these days, which is we have two singles guys. They're quite different. We don't know what to do with them. Let's throw them together and see what happens. And quite often, it has success, like Cesaro and Sheamus. Yeah, definitely. Because uh, because uh, Dave. Triple H, not long, just before this, he'd won the feud to be Stone Cold at No Way Out in the three stages of Hell match, another very underrated match, I think. Yeah, and I, I need to go back and watch that now, because, you know, I, I didn't even realise they had a three stages of Hell match. It's a very, very good match. And then he had a, what felt a wee bit less like a, a chuck-together feud with The Undertaker. It's a, a good match at WrestleMania 17, which is maybe forgotten about a wee bit more 
because it had to it come it came before Rock and Austin and maybe people know it best for the Mikey Oda bump that lasts oh. about half an hour. Also, <laughs> yeah. that, w- that was a really good match. It's a very very good match, but it, um, it's just forgotten because of all the whole Rock Austin drama. And WrestleMania 17, we've said a dozen times on this pod that it's probably the best WrestleMania that's ever been done. And obviously there was the the chaos of TLC2 as well. So it, it just kind of got lost in the shuffle because there was so much else going on. Yeah, 100%. But it, 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 Gary, it wasn't really doing much. So to have him in there with Austin, and these, these, it, it was an opportunity just for them to kind of chuck them together, as Gary said, and see what happened. And for the short time it was, it was just, it was magic, I thought. Yeah, it's it's the one that got away, isn't it? You never got, we'll never get to see the end of that story or find out where it, <coughs> where it could have gone and what that might have meant for Austin's heel turn uh, as well to have had Triple H to follow that through with um, but what it did set up for Triple H is uh, an amazing return and he was you know another example of somebody that took an adversity and turned uh, took a negative turned into positive a wee bit like you were saying about the curtain call he, he learned lessons on the back of that on how to work the politics and uh, conduct himself behind the scenes and what he did when he was injured is he looked at how he could elevate his character and uh, and I think that came across when he returned Yeah, because Gary mentioned obviously he had that return because May 21st Raw Tag Team Championship match him and Austin versus Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit for the Tag Team Championships he tears his quad and finishes the match Again, we talked earlier on about how he came back from being put to the bottom of the card, pretty much. But this is a completely different thing to come back to. It just it shows this the strength and grit he had mentally. Oh yeah, I mean the injury was completely grim, fully tearing it off the bone, and still finishing the match and allowing Jericho to put him in the walls. That's that's just nuts. Yes. But I mean, he came back from that after such a long period, of missing the invasion storyline entirely. But he came back. Probably for the as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that match, that tag team match, is very much forgotten about for obvious reasons, but it is one of the best tag team matches that's ever been on Raw. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. It's absolutely fantastic. It's a great one to go back and watch, despite the uh, uncomfortable injury. Yeah, because it's, it's. But, Gary, you mentioned Dominic, we'll just quickly talk about it before we go into the break. The return. Madison Square Garden, you know, until maybe recent years, it's it's probably one. It still remains one of the biggest pops in wrestling. It was it was phenomenal. It was one of those ones that you you could only imagine if you were in the building the feeling of it, because when you watch it on TV, it still has that still has that moment. Folk WWE had built this up, and folk were. You know, the excited in anticipation for it and actually it was a, a relatively short in-ring promo he announces his entry into the rumble and we have a, a short uh, coming together with with Kurt Angle so as in moments it wasn't spectacular you know it wasn't like what we described with the Undertaker return earlier on at Judgment Day it, it was not a spectacular segment. We knew it was going to happen. There was no surprise to it. It was advertised well in advance. But the the reaction was just incredible. And it really cemented Triple H as one of the main event stars. It's that sort of 
we might talk about this. We certainly seen it with points during the McMahon Helmsley era. I think he was overexposed. When somebody comes off the screen for a while, you uh, you, you get the chance to miss them. Mm-hmm. I think that really helped Triple H enormously here. But yeah, I mean that New York crowd as well. That's a proper WWF heartland. They know what they like, and they're not too afraid at telling you. Yeah, definitely. David was a big. The pop was great, but. For the like six months that followed it, it's fair to say that maybe dropped the ball with him a wee bit. Yeah, maybe a little bit. Given you know it was wrestling. I mean, he, he wins the Royal Rumble in, in two thousand and two. Great way to return, but having himself intertwined in that sort of uh, three-way feud between him, Stephanie, and Chris Jericho. You know, I know Jericho. I think probably came off the worst from it, but it didn't really do much for Triple H either. I mean, sure, he got his WrestleMania main event as a result of that, but, you know, again, they had to follow uh, Rock Hogan, which, I mean, I don't think anybody was going to talk that time around. So, and him, you know, making the jump to SmackDown afterwards, you know, he, he, at least he was still involved with the, the Undisputed title and stuff. But I think him missing that big WrestleMania moment following, you know, eight months of rehab, it, it did fall a bit below expectations given what else was on the card that night mm-hmm. I don't think he really regained momentum Grant until the summer of 2002 where he had that beginning of what was a two year feud with Shawn Michaels in that unsanctioned match at SummerSlam yeah I mean that's it it was definitely that that was absolutely outstanding when he when he like him and Michaels were reuniting and it was I mean that was all part of the win was it not the NWO storyline was kind of going on at the time but that got brought to an end yeah they can the NWO stuff I think essentially because I think I think Nash got injured that's a sure. surprise did he tear his quad I think he did tear his quad actually <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a running joke but I'm just wondering if that was the, the legit time he did it I'm sure he definitely did tear his quad you know but the whole thing where he, him, he smashes Michael's head through the glass the reveal both the, the way they tend to turn where it looks like they're going to reform DX and then the reveal that it was Triple H that put Shawn Michaels' head through the door. Genius, you know, fantastic mm. heel work. It shows he was a better heel at this point in time. Yeah, leading to oh, yeah. the, the unsanctioned street fight, you know, still one of the best SummerSlam matches by far. Oh, it was fab. It was fab. And I think you're, you guys are right. And you've seen, we'll, we'll probably talk about Batista shortly, but when Batista came back and he won the Rumble, it was kind of, I know stretch things a wee bit, a parallel with this, almost like too much too soon when Triple H won the Rumble, because he won the Rumble and then he was into the main event uh, at WrestleMania and Stephanie was around and that was overshadowing and she was just so fucking annoying, or is. Uh, and it wasn't fresh, it wasn't new. Um, yeah, just a bit too much too soon. It would have been better if his story when art when he came back was more about getting back to the top. So, in hindsight, if you could do one of the rebooks, maybe not having to win that rumble might have been a good thing. Uh, definitely. But in terms of going in a different direction, when we come back from taking a wee short break, we're going to talk about him taking another direction and forming one of the most dominant stables of, of you know the ruthless aggression era. In evolution, and then also after that, we're going to talk about his later career when he became a lot more of a part time wrestler and obviously more of a 40 figure. But before we do that, we're going to take a short break. And here is the promo from the summer of 1999 with him and JR, where he declares himself 
the game. We'll see you in a bit. Hello folks, I'm Nathan Fisher. And I'm Chris Murray. Join us on the Monday Night Viewing as we look back on every head-to-head episode of Dowdef Raw and Dowdef Nitro. Find us on the brand new Suplex Retweet Extra feed available on all good podcasting sites. You asked that China not be involved in this interview, and I'm just wondering why. Why? Everybody wants to know why. You know what? Because this one is about me, JR. It's not about China or anybody else. It's about four weeks from now. It's about 28 days from now. It's about me getting what I want out of this business, and that is becoming the WWF champion. So you're saying that in four weeks at SummerSlam, you will become the WWF champion without China's help. I'm right. I don't need anybody else, JR. This is about me. I don't need to be in a clique anymore. I don't need to be in DX anymore. This is about me. It's about me reaching my goals. You know, and while we're at it, this goes back a long way, JR. This goes back to the clique. This goes back to Madison Square Garden. Me walking in the ring and saying goodbye to my friends. That's four years ago. You're damn right it's four years ago, and every day it's eating a hole in my f***ing stomach, JR. Every single day. Watch your language, little. What, you, you want me to shoot with this interview? I'm going to f***ing shoot with it. I'm going to tell you how I feel, whether you like it or not. It's about four years ago, Madison Square Garden, I walked to the ring to say goodbye to my friends. Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, Shawn Michaels. Who got punished for that, JR? Me. I did. You know why? Because you didn't have the Nobody in the office had that to do it to anybody else. They did it to me. Why? Because I was the easy one. I was the one that would take it. Good old Triple H, he'll rise to the occasion later on. Don't worry about it. He'll come through. We can take care of that now, punish him, get rid of that. He'll come back later. Well, you know what? That makes me sick in my stomach. Every time I look at you guys, it makes me sick to think what you did to me, holding me back. You guys talk about being students of the game. I am the game, JR. There is nobody that eats, sleeps, or breathes this business more than me. And now it's my time to prove that to the world. SummerSlam is my time to take what is mine, and that is becoming the WWF champion. You know, Hunter, SummerSlam is about a lot more than just you. It's about the WWF title. It's about Jesse Ventura officiating that matchup. To hell with Jesse Ventura. To hell with The Rock, to hell with Austin, to hell with The Undertaker. I own all their asses. Jesse Ventura, I could care less. You want to promote SummerSlam around him? Go right ahead. But when it's said and done, SummerSlam is about me. It's about nobody else. It's about me. It's about me getting what I deserve in this business. And that is what I want, and that is becoming the WWF champion. Yo, it's your boy Suge D out here swag surfing in Scotland. And when I'm doing my thing, I like to think I do it in this order. It's eat, sleep, suplex, retweet. Let me run that back for you. It's eat, sleep, suplex, retweet. Remember the order. Listen to the show. Now you know. It's Suge D for the 99-2000. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to eat, sleep, suplex, retweet. <laughs> Welcome back to Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet. I'm Stephen Wilson. I'm joined by Gary, Grant, David, and Kwaku, and we are talking about the career 
of Triple H. Now, we left off in the first half in the end of 2002, uh, Dave, where around about this point is when we saw the return of the big gold belt mm-hmm. and Triple H was given the world on a silver platter technically the World Heavyweight Championship and round about this point as well he aligned himself with the Nature Boy Ric Flair mm-hmm. yeah I believe it was uh, it says in the archives that he says he defeated Flair for it but you know he was rewarded it but I think his first defence was actually against Flair as a result you know, he, he, I remember him saying, I think it was in October 2005, just before they had a match at Survivor Series, he was talking about, you know, he looked back on when he saw Ric Flair had, re- had been returning and he just described him as a shell of a shell of his former self, given that, you know, he was just, Flair was just sitting backstage doing nothing and he was saying, wait a minute, this is, this is Ric Flair, one of the greatest professional wrestlers in of all time. So I think that alignment with him and Flair, you know, getting getting each other's sort of support and knowledge, etc. Again, it's another step. You know, I, mean, I think this is the theme of what we're discussing today. It's just about the evolution of Triple H and the fact that you know Ric Flair is now bringing his knowledge down to the next uh, big main event star in Triple H. Yeah, Grant. Uh, before we talk about evolution, we need to briefly talk about the probably the worst point of his career. His feud with Kane in 2002. What were they thinking with the Katie Vick thing? Oh, God, that was one of the most controversial storylines of the time. It's like, hmm, we're going to push the boat out, but let's let's go and push it further. What can we do? Let's include a car crash. Let's talk about rape, necrophilia. No, no, guys, just don't bloody do that. It's just wrong. Mm. It was awful. Yeah, it was worst. It was an example of one step forward, two steps back. They put the belt on him, they put him in flair, and then they kind of do this. And they get rid of the Intercontinental title by unifying the two belts. Mm-hmm. Yep, and it was inactive for until Judgment Day 2003, so it wasn't defended for about eight months. Mm-hmm. And who won the belt then, Dave? Christian! Yep. It's Christian. It's Christian. It's Christian. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody gets a go. My, yeah. my my close personal friends and um, just putting that out there for you Sarah Greaves <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. We, we all know you got a picture with him at SummerSlam you can rub it in if you want uh, I just did <laughs> Gary and he moves away from that one frankly Triple H and at the start of 2003 we get the formation of the stable him Ric Flair Randy Orton and Batista now they've recently documented the whole beginning and obviously starting off phase of evolution what was your thoughts looking back on it when these four guys came together yeah i looking back on it now it's it's a fantastic piece of business um the document the the episode on the network is really great watch um i love i always loved stables uh, i loved Triple H and Ric Flair as a, a duo I love that pairing, I thought they were fantastic and what I liked about the evolution uh, creation was the the hints that they were giving you in the build up to it it didn't just happen uh, so when Batista came on to Raw, you seen the attempts by Ric Flair and Triple H to recruit him, I liked that story as well but my goodness, when you look back on the the story of evolution, 
my god, did that look snake bit? The injuries that happened to Orton and Batista and then the two of them at the same time, it just looked like it was going to be a car crash. And what was interesting from the, the show uh, is how much Triple H went to bat for this and how uh, strong he was in arguing with it. And I think this is a point in his career where he really started to get labelled as the guy that was holding people back. But he really fought for this uh, and he put his neck on the line. If evolution hadn't had worked, he would have um, had a lot of egg in his face. Yeah. Grant, how much different do you think this whole evolution thing could have been? Triple H's career at this particular point, if they had chosen the greatest dropkick in wrestling in Matt Brindrak as the fourth man? I'm going on the record to say second greatest dropkick. He's no Okada. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, I mean, yeah. It could have been a completely different, because Jindrak, Batista's got a certain charisma that, that Jindrak just could not match. And I think that could have made him a weak link and possibly brought Evolution down, and which, by proxy, could have affected the careers of all other three men. Well, perhaps not Flair so much, but Orton and Triple H, yeah. I, I agree with that one. I think, uh, Dave, they mentioned that in the documentary, actually. It was Triple H's disdain for the combination of Randy Orton and Jindrak. And it was actually Triple H who went to Vince McMahon and said, I don't want Mark Jindrak in this stable, which just shows how, as Gary mentioned, how much he wanted this to work. Yeah, you know, he, he sort of essentially put his chips, all his chips in to make this uh, this group work. And I think they did the right thing by bringing Batista in instead of Mark Jindrak, because, you know, as, as Grant said, Jindrak just didn't have the charisma about him. I mean, sure, he had that short-lived gimmick as the reflection of perfection, but it was... That's all it was. It was just a gimmick. Like, the man behind it, I just don't think he just clicked very well with the, the WWE formula. But you know what? Fair play to him. He's doing. He's still an active wrestler at this stage uh, down in Mexico, and he is doing very, very well for himself. I just think at the time, you know, he just didn't really fit WWE's like WWE's image. So having Orton and Batista in there together, you know, you've got the sort of young, sort of third generation up and comer, cocky superstar, and then you've got the big bodybuilding like muscle man of the group Batista you know it was a it was a really good mix of styles for them and I think they all just clicked really well with each other mm-hmm. uh, Gary you actually mentioned when you were initially talking there about evolution about how Triple H came across to a lot of people many people think that evolution was a fantastic stable at that point in time but if you flip it a wee bit slightly there was a great amount of criticism to Triple H around about this year 2003 to 2004 of him. This is essentially when the whole Triple H and the shovel analogy came about. That he just seemed to bury anybody who came across and faced them. Nobody seemed to get the better of him. What was your thoughts on that theory? I think there's some truth in it. Um, I mean, the one that really stands out to me is Booker T. Oh, um, it's an injustice, the one in Booker T. Uh, that one really stands out. But when you do look at Triple H over this time, he has and does put over people but there's a wee bit of a theme to them you know Shawn Michaels, Randy Orton not long after this, Batista as well, they were folk you know that he wanted to put over or that he had a connection with you could argue uh, I'm sure he would argue that he was doing uh, best for business but the, the, I, I, I I find it hard I 
I would take a very skilled uh, argument to convince me otherwise that this, that Triple H wasn't following an, his own agenda at this point. Yeah, another great example was Goldberg. 2003 was the year Goldberg debuted in WWE. We'd seen him as that unstoppable force in WCW. Yet when he came up against Triple H at the point of SummerSlam that year, where it looked like where Goldberg should have was positioned perfectly to win the championship, he loses quite decisively to Triple H. You know, that's a great example of potentially he didn't want to lose to Goldberg. He didn't feel like Goldberg was the one to take the belt from him. Yeah, I mean that's it. It was it was definitely it was, was it not the um, it was like a 280 day title reign. Unforgiven, they dropped it. That's right, yep. Within the old championship V's retirement, like championship V's career stipulation, and eventually having another rematch. It was one of the few times that Triple H seemed to have someone that got the better of him. But when you look at what they, how much they wanted Goldberg to be in it, it makes sense why he was probably one of the few people that he had to put over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he was Goldberg at that point was just an unstoppable bowling machine. Kind of at that at, at that point, but we've uh, Gary, we mentioned in 2000 the Triple H had great matches, but again when we got into 2004 away from 2003, this is where we started seeing a lot more of Triple H having some great matches again. Last man standing at 2004 Royal Rumble with Shawn Michaels, and of course the main event of WrestleMania 20, arguably one of the greatest Triple Threat matches in wrestling history. Yeah, um, are we allowed to talk about this match? Yeah, we've mentioned another match with a minute. <laughs> it's, it's a shame, actually, that because of the circumstances that this match doesn't get in the focus and attention it does. And this is actually, there's an example here of Triple H help, trying to help put somebody over because Benoit wins the title, but he then goes on to beat in singles matches both Shawn Michaels and Triple H in the back of it. You know, if you want to give somebody a rub as a, as a new champion, you can't really get set them off in a much better start than that, can you? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely not. And Dave, this kind of followed this win at WrestleMania 20, this kind of followed the three-month spell where Evolution were the almighty when they held all the championships after Armageddon in 2003. Yeah, they were just on top of the on top of the world right now, given that, you know, I mean, Flair and Batista, you know, were operating as the tag team and Randy Orton was going through a lengthy reign as Intercontinental Champion, which I think he he held on to that for about seven months or so. Uh, But Triple H was still feuding around the World Heavyweight title picture between Benoit and HBK. Like, he went on to have an Iron Man match with Benoit. Uh, after Vengeance that year, so again he was still heavily featured as the you know as we like to sort of refer to as the final the final boss, you know the ultimate heel superstar. But the one match I think that really stood out for me in that year was the Hell in a Cell match he had with Shawn Michaels. Given that you know they had the Last Man Standing match at the Royal Rumble, which ended in uh, a double count double count out. This Hell in a Cell, I had Bad Blood 2004 on DVD, and I watched it a few years ago. And my God, it, the storytelling in that match was absolutely incredible. And it was definitely the exclamation point to the end to this very long feud. So that, that match in particular stands out stands out for me. It's so much better than these Hell in a Cell match the year before with Kevin Nash. Oh yeah, like he had to bounce back from the, the Nash Hell in a Cell match. And this, this Hell in a Cell match in particular, it went on for... 47 minutes and it's still the longest Hell in a Cell match in history something else uh, Grant, Gary mentioned earlier on how Triple H seemed to put over guys that he wanted to put over 
and when you look at his evolution compadres Randy Orton and Batista if you kind of look there's there is similarities in the way that he puts them over in the whole sort of the thumbs up thumbs down type thing that they mirror into the Batista thing but at the same time the two go in completely different directions in the terms of his feud with Randy Orton and his feud with Batista yeah I mean it was, it was completely totally different different directions I like the fact that it's like maybe with like Batista being a bit older that's perhaps why they went in one direction but I love the whole dynamic of oh Randy's became champion I'm jealous you know if you're my protege you might be below me and just it started a brilliant feud between those two including the sort of the team matches were like Batista, Edge and Snitsky not kicking a baby this time against Orton, Orton, Benoit, Jericho and Maven at Survivor Series that was a brilliant match There's good stakes on it as well I mean I remember the role after it where they tried to manipulate Maven a wee bit and to try and do what they wanted pretty much to do essentially do what Triple H wanted them to do it just showed these kind of sway that was a legitimate uh, storyline they considered it was to get Maven to join Evolution but for some reason they just didn't go through with it could you imagine if Maven was in Evolution no mm. it's not that. he'd just be so out of place I reckon he, has a, he had a good drop kick as well <laughs> uh, best drop kick in the business I dare uh, you no, uh, it's, it's, it, it, it would have been something, but uh, Gary, uh, Grant mentioned the one, the sec, this kind of feud between Orton and Triple H, but the one with Batista was a, it's a fantastic bit of storytelling in the early part of 2005. It does such a great job of making Batista such a big star. It really does, and it was the story that the that they should have done with Randy Orton. So they certainly learned the the lessons from it, but oh, just it was so good. The the little hints, the and it wasn't so much about what Batista did, but, but the fans were just wanting it. And by the time it happened, uh, folk just went crazy for it, um, and the, the fans were just so ready for it. It was just a classic example of not rushing the story. Just take your time. Uh, and follow it through, hold your guns, hold your nerve with them. And um, yeah, it was so well done. And Batista was a made man at the end of this, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dave, uh, uh, the payoff on that episode of Raw, where he does the the thumbs up, thumbs down, turns his back at Evolution, is fantastic. Mm. But do you think, obviously your opinion, maybe other people's opinion, that to many, that's the stand, that's the peak of that feud, given that the match at WrestleMania where Batista beats Triple H is maybe seen as a bit of a letdown compared to what it could have been. Mm, but you know, that moment on Raw, I remember watching that live, uh, well, well, taped rather, but, uh, and it's still one of my favourite moments because my brother was starting to become a fan of Batista as well. And we both watched that and we literally just started cheering as soon as he did the thumbs down. So, and Batista is probably the best example of Triple H being one of those guys who has now sort of passed the torch over to Batista and say, right, this is your time, take it and run with it. And given all the, you know, we talked about, you know, we, there was a bit of a joke about him being the golden shovel and everything and what he did with Booker T in the prior years. What he did with Batista this time around was, was spot on. And they went on to have some fantastic matches throughout the end, throughout 2005, especially that Hell in a Cell in uh, what was it vengeance in vegas like that was yeah i do remember watching that hell in a cell and it was 
it was brutal and it was again just a perfect way to end the feud like it did with uh like they did with sean michaels in 2004. now uh, dave moving away from evolution i'll come back to you on something i mentioned earlier on mm-hmm. 2006 when he kind of he moves away from evolution and he reforms degeneration x with sean michaels now as a kid i love this as an adult watching it back i thought they should have not done it at all what's your thoughts um, you know what? I just I ran with it because this was bef- like this DX was something that I didn't really watch back like because I only started watching around the ruthless aggression era time to begin with. So seeing these two sort of bring back Degeneration X and get up to their their old antics, I I, I was loving it to be honest. And I get you know this was a, a time you know when they're both you know they're not as cheeky or you know as as big a pranksters as they used to be and that, that it wasn't the attitude era anymore i think given what they did it was if you had a the right sort of creative sense of humor i think it was jokes mainly for adults but as a teenager i think you would get get the impression that you know this is actually pretty pretty hilarious so i, I suppose it kind of again appealed to sort of teenagers and young adults etc but i think if you did it today like most of the younger audience wouldn't wouldn't get it at all and you'd have parents probably complaining about it as well gary you were a teenager during the original dx what was your thoughts <laughs> well it was, i can't i can't imagine a scenario where hornswoggle ever joins the original dx <laughs> or the original dx feuds with the spirit squad for very long it was uh <laughs> it was entirely different uh proposition i can see Stephen's point about not doing it introduced DX to a different generation, a different audience. It was certainly much more toned down, but it clearly made WWE a shed load of money with the merchandise, which is probably why it stuck around for as long as it did and kept what well, felt like it kept coming back. Yeah, just to add to that, Gary, I actually ended up getting a DX T-shirt, like the the sort of white logo one, uh, during that time, and. For those that know me, like I don't usually get merch unless it's someone I'm properly a fan of. And DX was just one of those things. And I do remember, I think it was 2006, I was at a live event at the Head Arena in Glasgow and DX were main eventing against Rated RKO and Umaga when they were teaming with Cena. I still remember that night quite fondly because I was sitting quite close to the front and, you know, I had like an, an amazing view of everything. and. I do remember when Triple H and HBK were going around, you know, the, the barriers, like high-fiving everybody. I, I remember I got a high-five off of Triple H as well, and I don't know, for, for some reason, that just sort of stuck in the mind, you know, I think, I, you know, I've, I've been a fan of this gimmick, you know, since they brought it back, and just being able to see it live and get that close in person to them, like, it, it just, it was it was fantastic, and it's something I'll, I'll always remember when when thinking of live events. Yeah, you met Triple H, didn't you? I did. So Dave got a. It was about nine years ago to the day, actually. Dave, um, you must have noticed that he has lovely manicured hands as well. <laughs> he does actually, yeah. But obviously they're wrapped up in. They were all wrapped up in tape when I was. Uh, <laughs> and this was 2006 as well, so I was only about uh, 13, 14 at the time. Mm. My uh, only encounter with Triple H 
was sitting below him as he was clapping on Tyler Bates after a match. So yeah, that's my that's my Triple H experience. Uh, well, do, you, do you know at that moment, Quacko Triple H looked down and said, "I can't believe that guy sat next to Gary." <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course he did. He probably uh, said, "Poor bastard." <laughs> uh, Grant, between 2006 and Gary meeting Triple H, uh, <laughs> we saw quite subtle points of when he's. He was start. He was putting guys over again. One a great example. I don't know how much you remember this. But he's one of the guys he really, really put on the map was Jeff Hardy. Remember about this period of the time? Yeah, he did. Um, that was that was actually like sort of after like the like the burial of the Spirit Squad. God forbid those cringe-worthy videos of them shouting their names where they sound like they've just taken a hit of cocaine. Comes back, Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like they, I actually had some brilliant matches with Hardy. Um, you know, I can't really relate to like having met Triple H like the rest of them. You know, I'm not as Gallows and Anderson would say a nerd, but you know, it was it was definitely brilliant stuff. And it was like I wasn't a big fan of the DX reunion, even at the time. It never clicked for me. I was more an raid RKO guy, but to see him put over Hardy, totally worth it. Yeah, but the the you mentioned the DX reunion. I mean, it's bad enough they did it the second time, but see what they did it the third time. You kind oh, of God, thought like. They kind of just like, why is doing? Are you just kind of? They look like they were just passing time until WrestleMania for the trip for the Shawn Michaels Undertaker match again. Mm. I mean, HBK was sort of, uh, sort of going through the retirement phase anyway. So I think it was worth doing that last run with DX, even if, even if it wasn't going to be as effective as before, because it was obviously a PG era and stuff. But some of the merch they were selling a lot more. It was. They were still selling glow sticks by the bucket full. They were still selling t-shirts. And a lot of them were, they were a lot more colorful and you know a bit more family friendly looking rather than you know the standard just black and white ones you used to get. You know, they had like gray shirts they had, uh, with a bit of green on them. It was, that's something about the, about the PGR I always seem to know is the merch was always a lot more colorful and a lot more, uh, a lot more eye-catching. Mm-hmm. Dave, one thing that was interesting just after these last DX run though, he seemed to then move into this whole sort of part-time wrestler status, you know. He had the match with match and feud with Sheamus at WrestleMania in 2010. But afterwards, he seemed to kind of go into some sort of semi-retirement that's lasted for a decade now. Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, he was, he was 40 years old by that point. So, and I, I don't know, it, it, it depends on, you know, various uh, wrestlers. You know, they can decide when they want to compete and when they want to hang up the boots but I think this effectively put Sheamus over as a heel as well but you know even though he lost the Wrestlemania match to Triple H the street fight uh, at Extreme Rules that's that's what really made Sheamus come across as strong you know attacking with with the lead pipe and Triple H getting carried out on a stretcher afterwards so and you know going back to what you were saying about putting Jeff Hardy over when Jeff Hardy won the WWE Championship, I just about jumped out my seat when I watched that live because it was such a big feel-good moment knowing they had come close to winning the title so many times. And this is just as a, an effective method to him putting over a new heel superstar because Sheamus was already WWE Champion or had a WWE title run by that point. But he just lacked that little extra bit of legitimacy because he wasn't in the WWE for that long. So having him you know, come across as like, a really sadistic, aggressive, like brawler who could beat 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 up a legend of the business with a lead pipe. I think it did Sheamus a big uh, 
a big favor there in getting him over as a new top heel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Gary, we mentioned the some great segments Triple H had, like the one with Batista, or um, no, the other ones that he had previous times. But one of in recent memory, he was involved in one of the top Raw segments I remember was when he returned in 2011. Both him and the Undertaker returning in the one night, which was the beginning of that year-long feud, which were just two of the best WrestleMania matches in both men's careers. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and what a, a period. I mean, if if Triple H hadn't gone part-time when he did, would he still be having matches in 2019? I don't think he's wrestled in 2020, has he? Would he still be having matches all this time later? Probably no, not. Probably his, not. Last, his, last, his last match was WrestleMania 35 against Batista. Batista. And when you watch the the 24 show uh, with the follow around Triple H I mean what, that guy's schedule that week was mental how he managed to find time to do a match is unbelievable mm. that segment you mentioned Stephen Lowe that was the one where not a word was spoken wasn't it no it just uh, Taker comes out because there's a part that meant to be Sting those vignettes were meant to be Sting but Sting never signed so they went with Taker Taker's about to speak and then Triple H just comes out and they both just look at the sign the crowd what? was absolutely nuts what yeah. a moment that was like I, I mean sure you'd expect the undertaker to return because you'd seen the vignettes but i remember watching this and i did not expect triple h just music to play Came out given that given that he was away for so long mm-hmm. it's one of those classic moments of sort of less is more they didn't they didn't need to do or say much and it just worked so perfectly and we were off to the races with a great a great story between the undertaker and triple h and uh, i'll never forget that moment in the hell in the cell match where um was it just mike was at the super kick into the pedigree pedigree oh. and you thought that's the streak gone but no mm. it's the first mania i watched live mania 28 i was absolutely nuts that, that that moment it's just like you felt that's the one thing I, mean, I think it was that and maybe Randy Orton hitting the RKO on him at WrestleMania 21 that I thought it was over before, the, before it ended. Just once we're talking about WrestleMania and we were talking earlier on about Triple H's reputation for putting people over. Triple H has had 22 WrestleMania matches and he's lost 13 of them. Yeah, I mean, some of the guys around about, particularly this period of the time, some of the guys he's put over at WrestleMania, oh. Daniel Bryan, Seth Rollins, you know, can't remember who, who else is he? Ronda Rousey. He'd put over Ronda Rousey, no way, yeah. I've, I've, yeah. Got, I've, got, I've got the list of everybody that's beat him in front of me. Who's the Ultimate Warrior, Kane, Undertaker three times, Batista, Benoit, Cena, uh, Daniel Bryan, Seth, Kurt and Ronda. Yep, he's... That's your lot. He's had, he's had some interesting, obviously he's done great stuff in putting people over, but Grant, one of the things I remember, maybe in 2011, that got a bit of a mixed one to me, looking back on him, is when he was the on-screen COO, and he seemed to be kind of just trying to get him in and about the whole CM Punk uh, popularity thing, and in doing so, maybe he kind of affected the level of popularity that CM Punk could have got. No doubt Punk was popular at that point, but he could have been even popular, especially the fact that Triple H beat him clean at the at on pay per view. Yeah, it was absolutely like that. that just it, it had an impact on like Punk's like how I viewed Punk. I mean, didn't get it got me more behind Punk the whole like 
bringing Kevin Nash in um, when Del Rio became champion. The, um, but yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that I think he should have taken a step back. Like, yeah, you're the, now the chief operating officer, so I, I would have preferred him to be less on screen at that time. Yeah, because because Davey was kind of there was a moment at the Hell in a Cell pay-per-view not long after it where they had the angle with the Miz our truth he was getting involved and you thought there was a way going with it but then he just ended up having that absolute guff match with Kevin Nash at TLC yeah he kind of shoehorned his way into the Summer of Punk and it all just sort of felt a bit like the Summer of Punk which was started off with Cena versus Punk it ended up becoming Triple H versus Kevin Nash in a Sledgehammer ladder match yeah I, I, I barely could even say it because it was such a ridiculous concept. Sledgehammer ladder match. And <laughs> I mean, sure, he had uh, a tag team match with CM Punk against Awesome Truth. And in a way, he kind of did put over Awesome Truth at the same time. So again, two guys who would then face uh, John Cena and The Rock at Survivor Series. I mean, that's I think that goes to show you what how much Awesome Truth was running rampant on... Uh, on Raw at the time, but yeah, I think the Summer of Punk was just one of those instances where he could have maybe had a bit more of a background type role, or CM Punk. CM Punk definitely should have gone over Triple H at, in some aspect, but you know, it is what it is. And but I suppose by the end of the year or WrestleMania season, we got the the end of an era, Hell in a Cell, and it's still one of the most iconic matches in WrestleMania history. Dave, I think. I think you guys are right about the C C O O run. It feels like a misstep when he fired when he came back and fired Vince. That that was brilliant. I loved that mm. segment. The stuff about Punk absolutely. He should have put Punk over. But this whole uh, WWE's fascination with the heel authority figure and uh, the promotion always being the heel, and you see this a number of times with Triple H in his non wrestling roles why are they so fascinated with it they could have went in a completely different angle here and reinvented that authority figure role but instead he became a sort of Vince McMahon light trying well, to hold CM Punk down and we've seen it again with Daniel Bryan later well that's um, what that brings me on to that point Gary because this is the final part of his career that we're going to talk about the authority which started in 2013 when they first started this out did you think this was a bit more fresh or did you just, or did you kind of think, as you just said, there it was just same old, same old? I, I enjoyed this. I thought it was, it was good when it started. I think it maybe went on a bit too long, mm-hmm. um, and some of the stories along the way could have been better. Like the firing of the Big Show, the Big Show being forced to do things, and then Big Show turning on them to a huge ovation it looked like finally the big show was going to be relevant and then he got beat and uh, and it's oddly joined them again at Survivor Series um, and there was parts of it Corporate Kane got a bit tired at that point but the good bits surprising bits about it, I mean Seth Rollins it really helped to elevate him and and the security guards um, J&J oh, security they were the, a modern day uh, Patterson and Briscoe but there was a whole audience out there that were different to me that probably hadn't seen uh, the previous incarnations of it did you say? 
the, I like the you know the crooked referee part of it as well was was good. It led to the big moment as Survivor Series with Sting, which which was great. But that story didn't last too long, and the Authority was back. So I think it was about three years the Authority ran for. Yeah, feels like ten years though. Yeah, it's it just been like for, too long. It feels like forever. Uh, Gary mentioned Seth Rollins. You know, one of my favourite memes online is just that one of just all his laughs, his maniacal laughs stitched together. I mean, at this point in time, I was a big Seth Rollins fan in the Shield. I was not confident how he was going to get over as a as a as a heel, but being aligned with Triple H, it just took Seth to that next level to make him, you know, the guy he is today, the Monday Night Messiah. It was again at a point where, I mean, this is like there were really two big people I can think of at that time that he put over. One through a match, which was Daniel Bryan, WrestleMania 30, my favourite Triple H match of them all. And like him putting Rollins over as the authority, J&J security being absolutely priceless. Jamie Noble is a legend, absolute legend. It's, it's some fantastic stuff. One of the best segments I remember on Raw was the one where they, with the car. The Brock Lesnar did beats up, uh, destroys the car. Oh no! He took the he took the door off its hinges and it actually he threw it towards the crowd and it actually hit somebody. Went in the crowd. It's a scary moment to see, not just because it nearly hits the crowd, just because of the strength of fucking Brock. Oh, the guy's a like the guy is a beast. Like there's you could you could, you could decimate a car and nobody would try and stop him. But Dave. Yeah. Gary mentioned missed opportunities, potentially one, the most notable one potentially was Sting, but there's smaller ones in there that potentially you never run. The Cody Rhodes stuff with him and Dustin, the Rhodes kind of one, yeah. that had so much potential during this point of the authority. It just felt like after the, the tag title in the Raw, with Big Show helps him win, it just fell out of nothing, it just went to nothing. Mm. Like, I do remember that, uh, the Rhodes family angle pretty well, and I think it was one of the best things about 2013 as well like on the build towards Wrestlemania because it was sort of a revitalization not just for Cody's character but also for Dustin as well and the fact that those guys were the ones that beat the Shield for the tag titles i.e. the Shield who were acting as basically enforcers for the authority as well it, it just put them over big time with the uh, you know Goldust getting a, a much needed revival as it were it's just a shame, you know, that as soon as Cody and Dustin won the tag titles, they kind of just ended up being just another tag team. And then, obviously, Cody went through the transformation of Stardust. So, it was... It's a bit annoying to see that, you know, what started off as something so promising, it just it just faded into obscurity. Aye, uh, but, Gary, probably one of the biggest probably disappointment during the whole authority thing was the, the need to kind of put Roman over. I feel like they missed so much with this whole back and forward with Triple H and Roman, particularly at the beginning of 2016. Yeah, I mean, that was the time they were trying every which way to get Roman over. And if memory serves me right, I might get the dates mixed up here, Stephen. The only moment it looked like he was going to get over is when he took the title off of Sheamus. The night after TLC in 2015. (laughs) Yeah, and then we had the whole misstep with the one versus thirty uh, the Royal Rumble. Rumble. One versus all, yeah. Triple H one, which Triple H won. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the second Royal Rumble win, you know. So it was just it was something that whole a forty one, but we, there is there was greatness of it. Grant, you mentioned the Daniel Bryan stuff. Do you feel like the forty should have ended at WrestleMania thirty? 
Aye, I definitely think like after Daniel Bryan got his big moment, I felt that would have been a natural point to dissolve the authority rather than keep it going for another like what two years. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Because uh, Dave, they could have broke up the authority and still done that fantastic two-match series between Evolution and The Shield. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this was sort of uh, ev- a revival of Evolution rather than just the authority. And those two matches they had with The Shield, like, it was a very, very good substitute given that Brian was dealing with like neck injuries and I mean, stuff. He fought, he fought Kane at the first paper at Extreme Rules mm. and then he had the neck injuries after that. Yeah, yeah, it was... But having that, you know, that sort of mini evolution reunion, it it put the shield over as a collective, and it was it was fantastic. But then just to sort of bounce back to the authority after Batista left and Rollins turned heel, uh, I mean, I can see why they did it because it's sort of the evolution stuff was almost felt like fantasy booking in a way, but it was a good way to sort of distract ourselves from the authority, even if it was just for a couple of months. Yeah, I'll never be convinced that bringing the authority back after uh, the Survivor Series was a good idea. You didn't, they didn't need that to build Triple H Sting match at WrestleMania. Um, I'll never be convinced that that was a good idea. No, I thought that was a, I thought that was a bad move, and it was the way, it was the way they kind of done it. It was just like it was just on a random Raw that Edge and Christian were on, and it's like, mm-hmm. hey, don't get me wrong. See, look at now. They could use that to do a feud between Rollins and Edge down the line. You know, mm. that's probably the only good thing that comes from that. Hmm. I mean, him and his, if he keeps his Messiah gimmick and stuff, but obviously we don't know the, the status of Rollins as of yet, but, you know, that's that's for another show. Yeah, definitely. For the sake, for the sake of my draft team, he better not be going anywhere. <laughs> I don't think he's going anywhere, man. Trust me. I don't think he's going anywhere. Um, there's... This part-time run at Triple H, I think it's fair to say, it's had its ups and its downs. Where there was the great matches at WrestleMania with the likes of Seth Rollins and and that tag match involved Ronda Rousey. There was the match at Super Showdown. (laughs) (laughs) Can we not not talk about them? (laughs) No, no, they absolutely suck. No, we're not going to talk about them. No, they're absolutely terrible. But um, do you think... Before we kind of round the show off, has he got one more match left in him? Probably. I think he needs to... If he's going to retire fully, I think he needs to go out on his back. Like, in the same way that, you know, Batista did at Mania 35, like, even though Triple H was the one that got the victory, I think he needs to put over one more person and say, that's it, I'm done. Because he's in his his 50s now. And, you know, he said before, you know, because... He said before in his DVD that he's because he was so used to the hectic schedule and working full time, like training part time now when you've got to go through an excruciating workout to do one match and then you know the rehab afterwards, it 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 actually takes quite a lot out of you because it's something you're not used to anymore. Especially yeah. when he's got a schedule like Gary mentioned the wrestling. Oh yes, yeah. oh yeah, definitely. And he's traveling places. He's uh, doing corporate meetings. He's doing gym work. And but yeah, just to sum it up, I think he needs one more WrestleMania match to put somebody else over and then that can be his retirement match. And it needs to be Adam Cole. Maybe. Ah, <laughs> uh, Jesus. And on that note, I think that's a good place to end our career recap of the Cerebral Assassin, the game, Triple H, where we've talked about his in-ring career, 
we've purposely missed out his leadership of NXT because we think we could get a full show out of that again in the future. So potentially stay, tu- stay tuned. Subscribe to us on any good podcasting site so you may hear that show about Triple H's run of NXT. And you could also, if you subscribe right now, hear our show next week, which is hosted by David. And it's, David, it's the latest in our series of shows that we've been doing for the last two and a half years on The Undertaker. Yep, this uh, this show will be talking about Undertaker's greatest matches. And it doesn't have to be WrestleMania, it could just be from any point in his career. And I think it suits quite well given that, you know, we're in the midst of his sort of little mini docu-series, Undertaker The Last Ride. So we're going to take a, our own personal look at some of our favourite Undertaker matches of all time. Yeah, we've, it's, it's the fun of our shows focusing more on some of the oh, greats no. of wrestling history. No, oh, not the first show this month. Yeah, yeah. Some of the greats of wrestling history. We've had, we did the Rock one last week with Triple H here, and we've got Undertaker next week. Some great content to help you get through this time of lockdown or whatever the English are calling it. You know, stay alert and go to Good work. Luck. Go to work. But don't go to work if you can't go to work. <laughs> oh dear. And visit visit someone else in a park, but don't go visit your parents. Yes. You can visit go to England. You can visit you can see one of your parents in the park and then ten minutes later you can see another parent. That and is not that's baffling make, enough. But this I isn't make, a politics show. And make sure you get the most out of visiting your local garden centre as well. <laughs> <laughs> But I think we're Scotland. We're still indoors. Uh, but nothing about politics. It's about wrestling. Uh, I'd like to thank my panel this week. David Totney, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Gary Kernan, thank you. Thank you. I never thought I'd say this, guys, but I'm missing seeing your happy, smiling faces. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Quacker, <laughs> <gasps> uh, uh, Grant McRobbie, thank you. You're welcome. Quite good, thank you very much. Oh, no problem at all. Sorry, lockdown has turned me into an even bigger hater. Uh, we all have seen the moment Quacko's heel turn. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was almost two years ago when I won the sodden belt. <laughs> oh, that was funny though. <laughs> I've been Stephen Wilson, and we will see you next week. Ladies and gentlemen, Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet now proudly presents. Suplex Retweet Extra! Get bonus content on WWE, AEW, NXT, WCW, Scottish and World Independent Promotions. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple and Android podcasting sites, as well as YouTube. Head over to suplexretweet.com now!